Good morning, my name is Greg Toddick. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 39 through 42. So now would be the time to get out your Bibles or just follow along on the screens. Luke chapter 6, verses 39 through 42. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Good to be with you all this morning. I want to conclude our series. We've talked about missions, talked about ministry, talked about management. And last week, we started talking about multi. And I want to finish that up today. I think this guy is worth mentioning. I'm pronouncing his name uh, probably incorrectly. Vilfredo Pareto. Anybody know who he is? 82. Who said that? Amazing. Al Lopez. Good for you. Um, In 1896, he showed uh, that 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the people in Italy. And uh, he got this idea by observing that 80% of peas came from about 20% of the pods. Uh, soon uh, caught on, and many people started seeing this uh, ratio played out all over the world in nature and social phenomenon, and it came to be called the Pareto Principle, or as we know it today, the 80-20 rule or the law of the vital few. Uh, it applies in our church, for example. They say, though I haven't tested it, but Al probably would know. Uh, 80% of the church work is done by 20% of the people. And if you ask the 20%, they'll say, yes, that's true. If you ask 80%, they say, of course that's not true. Uh, 80% of the giving from 20% of the people, we'd have to ask Phyllis about that. Uh, in a company context, they say, Uh, 80% of a company's complaints come from about 20% of its customers. I don't know. Um, Dixie uh, Gillespie of Entrepreneur Magazine, she flips this and she says that 20% of issues cause 80% of your problems. Uh, And that's sort of how I want us to think about it today. Not so uh, quantified, but in principle, uh, that there is a small amount of input in your life that's causing a large amount of problems, output. And I want you to consider that um, the title of today's talk is Be Direct. 
And what I want to suggest to you today is that this one principle of our unwillingness to be direct with our own selves and with each other is causing a huge amount of problems in your life. And if you are willing to do this one thing on a regular basis as a way of life for you, you're going to dramatically reduce the number of problems that you have. And when I say problems, I mean problems that cannot be solved. You feel stuck are going to be uh, solved and reduced in your life. Uh, The Bible calls this unwillingness to be direct. Uh, In today's passage, it calls it hypocrisy. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Uh, In Matthew's version of this passage that was read for us in Luke, uh, Jesus starts out by saying, why do you judge? And so Jesus calls this judging. When you're unwilling to be direct with yourself or with each other, it's called judging. Here, Jesus also calls this blindness or specking. Um, there are spectrums before us, and you answer for yourself where you fall on the spectrum. On the one hand, we have a way of life that consists of accusing other people, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have confessing our own sins. Okay, where do you fall in that spectrum? Tend to. Uh, on the one hand of the spectrum, we have blaming our circumstances and uh, other people and situations, or we have people who are able to own their life and own their feelings and own their problems. Blaming versus owning. Uh, We also have, on the one hand, uh, us feeling stuck, repeating patterns in our life, or we have following Jesus and moving forward rather than being stuck. Uh, Let me start by acknowledging that some of you may feel that I have a conflict of interest because I, by personality, am a direct person. And some of you have uh, seen that or uh, think that of me. And I would say that's, in general, that's true. Uh, But I do also want to let you know that uh, it is a struggle for me to be direct. It's not easy for me. It's almost always scary. There's probably... uh, sweat on the surface of my skin and uh, increase in my heart rate. And sometimes, and this is to Jesus' point, uh, sometimes I'm direct about you, to you, as a way to avoid my own stuff. So my directness gets used as a way to be avoidant. That's how tricky the human uh, heart can be. And so I do want to put before you that even though it is my personality to be direct, it's still challenging for me to be direct. And often I'm being indirect when I am acting direct. Okay, so I am putting myself in the same boat with all of us together. Okay, and for the purpose of our series, I would say that Uh, We are many and we are different. And a key way for us to function well and be healthy and effective as a church is our willingness to be direct with our own selves and with each other. And there's a tendency to be indirect. And I think that's not the life that Jesus has for us. Two points today. The first is the blind, the blind. And second, the log, the speck. 
First, the blind, the blind. Let's zero in on verse 39. He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? This is a rhetorical question. And Jesus is simply uh, making the statement that if you claim to see something, then you're claiming that you're able to lead somebody who can't see. But if you can't see in reality, you're both going to end up in a pit. Uh, I've been uh, hearing some interesting things about sight over the last couple of years. Uh, And I've been reading more recently about echolocation. Uh, You guys, some of you know what that is. Echolocation is when you use sound to form an image in your brain. It's a way to see without light, but using uh, sound waves instead. And we know that some mammals do this. We know that dolphins uh, see by echolocation. We know that bats are able to see by echolocation. I learned this week that uh, the other animal that sees by echolocation are shrews. And over the last uh, few years, there's been interesting uh, development in this area, uh, primarily through this one man who is blind. He had uh, something go wrong with his eyes and had to have both eyes removed when he was just a little kid. But uh, he started clicking his tongue one day and started making this sharp noise with his mouth. And that sound would travel, bounce off his environment and come back to him. And then he can use that information to form an image in his brain. And he can see to the extent that he can even ride a bicycle. Look this up. Uh, There's videos and interviews and um, other talk shows that have gotten into this. But it's a fascinating story. He's not actually just using sound to sort of figure out, but he's actually seeing. Now, scientists have started studying his brain, and what they realize is you don't actually see in front of you. You see in your brain, right? The light comes into our brain through our eyes, and then we take that information, and we form an image in our brain, And when this man is seeing, he is able to actually use the uh, sound waves to form an image in the exact same place, in the exact same manner that we form an image or sighted people form image to see. And so he's not kind of seeing, he's actually seeing in the exact same manner that we see. That is to say, He is able to have an accurate experience of what reality is actually like. He's not just guessing. He's able to say, no, that's a tree that I just rode by. That is a garbage can that fell over on the street, so I have to move out of its way. That's a park bench. That's where the trail ends and the street begins. Cars are whizzing by. He's able to see reality. And that's the point Jesus is making. If you don't have a clear depiction of reality, you're going to harm not only yourselves, but those you claim to be helpful to. You both fall into a pit. I had this experience in New York. Uh, There was this house that we fell in love with, and we wanted to buy this house. This is when we were moving from Boston to New York. And uh, uh, it was uh, back when the housing bubble was just beginning to start, wonderful times, uh, we had this real estate attorney named Bob. Uh, we call him Bob the Bright because he wasn't. And we just felt like 
at least, at the least, he didn't care. But what it seemed like is he just didn't know his stuff at all. And he was very distracted by his personal life. He paid very little attention to us. He missed a bunch of details. And he was partnered up with a mortgage lender that was uh, predatory and did not care, an organization that collapsed uh, called Silverstone. Uh, Silverstone the Slippery because we could not get in touch with them ever. And so we have Bob the Bride and Silverstone the Slippery leading Susie and I who are asking all the questions because we don't know how real estate works in New York City. And so we got into a bad mortgage, the kind that uh, starts eating away at the owners. And this very house that we had prayed to get into, now we found ourselves praying to get out of. It was the blind leading the blind, and we fell into a pit. And it wasn't fun, but it was eventually uh, worked out. And so we experienced it. When we couldn't see We needed other people who knew what was happening on a financial and real estate level. They were also blind, however, and they could not lead us. And so we answer Jesus' question, can a blind man lead a blind man? Can somebody who's not accurately perceiving reality be helpful to somebody else? And the answer is, no, you can't, okay? That's the blind the blind. Second, the log, the speck. Uh, verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, I want you to understand the double-blind nature of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you have a log in your eye, and by that he means you have a log in your eye. And then he says a second thing. When you have a log in your eye, and you do, then you won't be able to see the log that is in your eye. So you're blind, and you don't even know it. You have this giant piece of wood sticking out of your eye socket, and the effect, the first effect that you feel when that's happening is you don't see the fact that you have this giant piece of wood sticking out of your eye. Now, if you have a log sticking out of your eye socket, but you are aware of it, then will you harm less people with it? Yes. What happens if you have a giant piece of wood sticking out of your eye and you don't realize you have a giant piece of wood sticking out of your eye? Oh, let me help you with your speck. And then what happens? You start knocking people out. Can you be helpful to somebody with a speck? No, because you yourself need a great deal of help before you can even begin to think about helping somebody else. If you have a log in your eye, then Jesus says you are blind. And by that he means you do have a log in your eye, therefore you are blind. 
And then there are a couple of uh, implications of this truth. One, we have a tendency to focus on other people's speck than our own log. That's our tendency. Taking that uh, implication one step further, Jesus, I think, saying, the, the reason you're able to even be aware of the other person's speck is because your own log is acting as a magnifying glass that allows you to see the speck that is quite far away to begin with. What makes the speck of the other person in, in, in the other person's eye so interesting to you is the very presence of your log. If you didn't have the log, that, lo- that speck isn't that interesting to you. It may even be imperceptible to you in the first place. Um, about 15 years ago, I met someone who is now one of my very, very good friends. And I deem him to be a great human being. And I really like him a lot. And I turn to him often. But when I first met him, for four and a half years, I didn't like him. I judged him. I had a whole set of theories and categories uh, about why he was the way he was and how he was and when he is that way and when he is not. And I had analyzed him uh, really obsessively for four and a half years. And here's basically the trait about him that I found so irritating slash interesting. I found that he had a very dominant personality. And he had a tendency to take over conversations. And I really, really was bothered about, by, by this trait. And then often after an interaction in a group or one-on-one, I'd uh, uh, come home just feeling sort of just irritated about this and just unnerved. And I would regularly bring this personality up to Susie and say, hey, do you ever experience this person like this? Did you notice when they said this? Did you feel? And every time Susie's response was, uh, I guess. Really? That? Uh, I don't, well, yeah, I can see that. And I found it doubly frustrating that Susie wasn't uh, confirming my experience that I thought was absolutely universal. Everybody should notice this. Doesn't everybody feel? And, and the answer was no. Some people did notice it, but it didn't get under their skin the way uh, it did me. And four and a half years later of intense friendship, I began to, it began to dawn on me that I also can be a dominant person and take over conversations. Who's laughing? (laughs) And I find it fascinating that for four and a half years, I could have analyzed somebody and not have realized that I actually am the exact same way. And that is precisely the reason why I had such keen insight into his personality. That's precisely why it was irritating to me. There was something about him that was too close to home, even if I hadn't realized it yet. Now, 
I think the nature of the double blinding effect that logs have on us and the relationship that it causes us to have with other people and their specs, it makes it hard for us to accept this statement that Jesus is making. That we have a log. We always have a log sticking out of our eye. And you know what people who have logs out of their eye say? What log? Because the nature of the log is it's blinding. You don't see the log. That's how you know you have a log. And further evidence, you're interested in judging other people. How many of you have never judged before? It's not an issue I can relate to. No, every single one of us, we have judged. And the reason we do that is as a way to avoid having to deal with the log that is in our own eye. That is our natural, normal, primary, initial response to logs in our eye. We focus on other people. That's what we do. And Jesus says the proper procedure is to address the law first so that you can be clear-sighted to actually be helpful to somebody who may or may not have a speck in their eye. What do you think? Can you accept this truth about yourself that you have a log in your eye? And the call, I think, is for us to directly address what's most obvious and in front of us. It's not to get distracted. It's not to delude ourselves into thinking that we are to be helpful with other people's spec. First, take the log out of your own eye. And I have a feeling Jesus doesn't say this, but the helping of the other person, it almost is an effect. It's collateral effect. It's what happens as you engage the process of removing the log that is in your own eye. Okay, I want to spend the rest of the sermon time uh, in application. Uh, If 80% of your problems are caused by your unwillingness to address directly what is most in front of you, uh, I want to ask the question, how do we do that? And as a way to answer that, I want to give you three principles or three uh, categorical ways of thinking about how. Okay? And the first is this. Favor talking to the person rather than about the person. Have any of you ever talked about a person as a way to avoid talking to the person? Anybody? Anybody? I do this all the time. All the time. Talking about you is so satisfying. I feel so validated. Everybody thinks the same way I do. 
I have a friend who is uh, a recovering alcoholic, and I asked him the question where the line is, where he knew he was beginning to cross over between somebody who is uh, drinking and somebody who is becoming an alcoholic. And he said, this is the line for him. And I really resonated with this. He said, uh, he began to drink not as a way to care for himself, not as a way to help him better engage his life, but as a way to escape and avoid his life. It was a way to not deal with pain, but to avoid feeling the pain. And that's where he crossed the line. And I want to submit to you the part that resonated me with, it's the exact same thing about what the scriptures call gossip. Gossip, by definition, is talking about a person as a way to avoid talking to the person. So let me give you one uh, just uh, caveat for this or a qualifying statement. You are allowed to talk about people. Absolutely. You have to. It's part of your process as a way to help you better talk to the person. But if you talk about a person as a way to avoid talking to the person, that's called gossip. So, favor talking to the person. If something is bothering you and you want greater understanding about it, talk to somebody who can handle that conversation and and state it by saying, I want to talk to you about this person because I want to better understand. I want a little more light shed on the situation. Okay, that's the first thing, gossip. Uh, the second part of this principle is beware, be aware of the monkey and beware the monkey. I forget where, exactly where I had read this or heard this. I think it was in a Harvard Business Review or something. But they talk about the monkey. And by monkey, they mean anxiety. Everybody has an anxiety about something. There is some situation or some other person that we feel anxious about. And often throughout the day, we're trying to get rid of this monkey. And often we do it by talking to, uh, talking to another person about another person. All right, by avoiding having the actual conversation. And so have you ever been in a room or in your office or at your desk, and you're just sitting and minding your own business, doing your work, and then somebody comes in and says, oh, do you have a couple of minutes? And they just dump on you, and then they walk out. They feel much better. But you got their monkey now. Because they didn't actually address any issue or solve any problems. They just dumped their monkey or anxiety on you. So be aware of your monkey, the anxiety you carry, that you're tempted to dump on other people. And beware the monkey that other people are trying to dump on you. Okay? So avoid avoidance. Okay, second principle. Confess something not nothing. Now, when you are preparing to talk to a person rather than just about a person, how do you do that? What is a uh, real good way to start talking to a person? And the way you do it is by being confessional. You start with you, not with you. Start with me. So let's ask the question, what is the most obvious thing in the room, according to Jesus? The speck? 
No, it's the law. That's the most obvious thing in the room. And where is it coming out of? The other person's eye? No, out of your eye. The log is coming out of your eye, out of my eye. And so when you are talking to a person, you're having a direct conversation, the thing you must be most direct about is your own log. Admit first that you probably have a log, and by that you mean you have a log. Maybe you don't have a name for it. Maybe you don't even see where it ends and where it begins. It's so huge. Maybe you don't have that much awareness of it because it's all you know. You've had this log in your eye for so long. But you have one. So you start with that. And understand that the very fact that you claim to have insight about the speck is evidence that you have a log. So start with the log. Let me read to us from 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's the double blindness. If you have sin, and then on top of that, you say you have no sin, that's your double sin, and it locks you in. You are now in self-deception. It's bad enough that you have sin. But then on top of that, you add, I don't have sin. And then now you are deceived. And now you are without hope. You know where hope begins? Verse 9, if we confess our sins. The first step is to come out of denial about the fact that you are in denial. Say, God, I'm in denial. Or to a friend, I have this log Let me describe it to you for a second. And it gives me amazing insight into your spec. So let us agree to ignore my log and work on your spec. No. I have this log. And I think related to this log, I feel the uh, irritation of the spec that I think I see. I'm not sure. But I'm feeling something. But what I'm bringing to the table is my confession saying, I have sinned, and I'm in denial. I need help. And then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me ask you the question. When you are talking to a person, what will go over better? When you start with the speck or when you start with the log? Just take a wild guess. And on top of that, it's actually true, whether you want to admit it or not. Remember, you have a constant push to want to be in denial about the log. That's the blinding effect of the log. You will not want to see it. You will not be able to see it. Lastly, play chess. You know, uh, the amazing thing about chess is when it's your turn, it's your turn. You have to make your move. And uh, it just clarifies for me that if I spend my time on the move that they just made and being upset at the move that the other person made, I'm not going to be able to make my move. 
There is a way that as soon as they're done making their move, I have to own that time and space as my turn. It's my responsibility. It's my job now to focus on what my move is. I want to suggest to you that if you are feeling stuck in some way in a relationship or in a job or in some scenario, there's probably a good chance that you're too focused on your opponent's move and not enough on your own. You're too obsessed with their spec. And you can't see your move clearly. What's your move? Make your move. Don't be so interested in other people and their spec. If you wanted to focus on other people, there is an infinite supply because we are all very sinful. If I wanted to pick on you, I can. If I wanted to pick on my wife, I can, or my kids, or my job, or my circumstances, or my childhood, or whatever. There are always things that I can legitimately be upset about and stay stuck in about. Or I can focus on my move. Take responsibility for the log that is in my eye and come to God and say, God, I can't see because I have this log. I have sin." And then light begins to pour in. There seems to be sort of a window that's open and air's coming in all of a sudden. There are many, many ways to avoid responsibility if you want to. If that's how you like to live, that's fine. But you're choosing that. Now, I realize that being direct with each other and maybe even with our own selves is even harder Facing what's most obviously in front of us is very scary. And it has a high potential for getting messy. And it's substituting lots of little long-term pain for one quick rip of the Band-Aid, maybe. And often it's not the best short-term solution, but I think it is actually the best long-term solution. The scriptures talk about truth, and it talks about love, but one of the ways that it brings it together is it talks about truth in love. Now, it doesn't say truth and love. That's not the, there's no conjunction there. It's a preposition. Truth in love. It means that truth itself is enveloped in love. Truth itself is a descriptor of love. It's a function of love that such now when I'm truthful with my wife Susie, I don't have to think, okay, how can I say this in a loving way? Because I actually love her. And so I take her into consideration. So there's a gentleness and a tenderness that's baked into the truthfulness. It's not a separate afterthought. And I think as we practice being direct, We will get better and better and better. And so just as Jesus says, it is the best long-term way to live. What I want to do is I want to give you a description of how Jesus is part of this process as a sort of a prayer and teaching of blessing. And as I do this, I want you to uh, consider within your own heart if you are willing to say yes to this way of living. 
I know we're in the Northwest. We don't live directly with each other or with ourselves. I know it's not our cultural norm. So allow me to uh, describe Jesus and his work for us. And as I do that, consider if you will invite Jesus to help you live in this more direct way. Jesus, he took our log, that is our sin, and he took it upon himself and he was crucified on it. This is the death of Christ, taking away the death that should have been ours. And being direct would be frightening if we feared for our lives every time. And then on this log, he bled. And through his blood, he forgave us of our sin. He washed us clean. So it is not our righteousness we put forward before each other, but it is only by the forgiveness of our sin that we are able to address sin with each other at all. This is the blood of Christ. And through the shedding of his blood, He convinced us of his love. And he takes away the fear of abandonment that we carry with us. This is the love of Christ. And through his love, he gives us not just words, but the very presence of the Holy Spirit that's already doing the work of redemption in all of our lives such that We can do the right thing, trusting that redemption is on the other side of this very direct act we're about to do. God is already at work. This is the Spirit of Christ. And He's able to do this work because He sees clearly. He's not blind like us. He knows all and sees all and is fully competent to lead all of us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of our soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus sees all because he is God. This is the divinity of Christ. And though we are many and though we are different, he is able to bring within our community as we obey him the very presence of real peace, peace that only he can give, not merely the absence of conflict. This is the body of Christ that is the unity in Christ. Would you say yes with me to living this way? By the power of Christ? Then pray with me. God, we repent of our fear that causes us to be avoidant, that keeps us from taking steps of faith with ourselves and with each other. God, you live on the other side 
of this new way of living that you call us to, to be direct, to be fearless, knowing we are already loved, knowing there is no abandonment, knowing you are already redeeming us. We confess to you and to each other in Jesus' name. Amen.